I'm uh, Ben Friedman. I'm a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies here at Cato. Um, welcome to the uh, sexiest panel of the day, at least in terms of content. Uh, rebels, terrorists, mobs, and anarchy, sub-state threats. And I, I think the, the reason uh, to discuss this, I think, is sort of obvious is since 2001 in particular, there's been a, a trend, which I think is maybe waning, uh, to identify failed states or foreign anarchy uh, as a threat by definition to U.S. security. Um, but uh, as I think uh, at least one or two of the speakers will point out, uh, the idea that internal foreign internal disorder uh, threatens U.S. security is not something that just occurred to Americans uh, in the last decade. The disorder on the frontiers uh, beyond uh, U.S. borders, whether it was uh, Native American Indian raiders or uh, bandits of various sorts in what's now parts of the United States, was uh, certainly a concern in the, in the 18th and 19th uh, centuries and even a driver of U.S. Uh, territorial expansion, uh, particularly after the Spanish-American War, the U.S. participated uh, in, in policing or counterinsurgency actions and uh, lots of places, Latin America and the Philippines, of course, uh, remembered that along with several of our uh, World War I allies, we uh, intervened in the Russian Civil War. And of course, during the Cold War, uh, fear of communists or leftists emerging from uh, civil conflicts abroad encouraged a raft of U.S. Uh, interventions mostly, but of course not entirely covert. We have uh, four discussants or four presentations, I'm sorry, four presentations and a discussant to get through. So let me just leave the bios to the, to the handout that you have in the web uh, and introduce our speakers uh, very briefly in the order uh, they'll speak. Uh, Max Abrams uh, of uh, Northeastern uh, will discuss his research on terrorist goals or lack thereof and uh, what it recommends for uh, U.S. Uh, counterterrorism policy. I think he'll talk about deterrence in a non-traditional way. Um, Austin Long of Columbia will discuss how the organizational and, and technological changes in our tools of military intervention impact our, our propensity to use them uh, against these sorts of threats and, and sort of what seems likely to work against what sorts of enemies. Uh, Peter Andreas Brown will discuss the threat of transnational organized crime, drawing on his uh, recent book, Smuggler Nation, How Illicit Trade, Illicit Trade Made America. And finally, uh, well, not finally, uh, penultimately, Paul Pillar of uh, Georgetown will look at sort of why we perceive uh, substate threats uh, as uh, substate groups as threats and examine uh, uh, the arguments that they are, sort of uh, take apart the logic. Uh, Paul uh, is uh, uh, now a senior fellow at the Center for uh, Security Studies at Georgetown. His title has changed a bit. Uh, and finally, uh, Jen Keister, who's here as a visiting fellow uh, at uh, Cato, will uh, be our discussant and sort of uh, weave this all together and uh, make it coherent and whole. And then hopefully we'll have a lot of time left over for Q&A. Max. Great. All right, thank you so much, happy to be here. So the, uh, the terrorism threat isn't nearly as dangerous as a lot of people think. We know from uh, John Mueller and, and Ben Friedman and Mark Stewart and, and some other Cato fellows that 
the U.S. government has overreacted to terrorism relative to its direct physical costs. Their research shows that 9-11 was actually, in some ways, a financial bargain compared to the bottomless amounts that we've subsequently squandered on feckless foreign interventions and, and homeland security measures. But the policy community has overreacted to terrorism in another way as well. After the 9-11 attacks, many people feared that other aggrieved parties would try to emulate the perpetrators in order to achieve their political ends. The fear was that terrorism would diffuse throughout the world as other groups learned the political value of attacking civilians. Democracies, we were told, were especially ripe targets because terrorists would exploit our freedoms and, and then force us to the bargaining table. But just as the direct physical costs of terrorism have been overstated, so too has the political value. Since 9-11, a growing body of academic research has examined the political consequences of terrorism. This research shows that terrorism is a remarkably ineffective tactic for groups to achieve their political demands. In fact, terrorism is actually politically counterproductive. Today, I'll summarize some of the academic literature on terrorism's political impact, and then discuss just very quickly some of the counterterrorism implications. Historically, there's been almost no rigorous empirical research on terrorism. This has been especially true when it comes to the political consequences of the tactic. In the 1980s, Martha Crenshaw pointed out that the outcomes of campaigns of terrorism have been largely ignored. Ted Robert Gurr added that terrorism's political effect is a subject on which little national level research has been done, systematically or otherwise. Since the 9-11 attacks, though, a flurry of empirical studies have filled this research vacuum. What they show is just how politically ineffective terrorism really is from the standpoint of the perpetrators. In 2006, I published in International Security a paper called Why Terrorism Does Not Work, which was the first large-end study on terrorism's political consequences. My study assessed whether terrorism helps militant groups politically. Specifically, I analyzed whether groups are more likely to achieve their political demands when they direct their, their violence against civilian targets in particular. To this end, I examined the political plights of the 28 foreign terrorist organizations as designated by the US State Department. The analysis revealed two main things. First, the political success rate of all of these groups is actually very, very low. The vast majority of FTOs have perpetrated terrorism for many decades without any tangible political return. Second, all of the successful groups use terrorism only as a secondary tactic. Specifically, each of the political winners directed their violence 
against military targets as opposed to civilian ones. By disaggregating the groups by target selection, I therefore help to reveal the full extent to which terrorist attacks defined as non-state attacks against civilian targets specifically has been a losing political tactic. Subsequent studies have found equally bad rates of terrorist success. Jones and Lebecki from RAN, for example, they examined every known terrorist group from 1968 to 2006. And of these 648 groups, only 4% obtained their strategic demands. Audrey Cronin then re-examined the success rate of these groups and confirmed that 5% prevailed. What's more, all of the authors found that the few cases in which governments did grant concessions almost never had anything to do with the coercive pressure of terrorism. For example, a bunch of groups just happened to achieve their political demands by dint of the Soviet Union collapsing, which you know, created a whole new set of countries. Now, terrorism isn't just correlated with political failure. Attacking civilians actually lowers the chances that groups will obtain their political demands. Last year, I analyzed uh, the political outcomes of every campaign ever waged by a foreign terrorist organization. And again, the study reveals a lot of variation in the political successes of these militant groups, depending on their target selection. Groups are significantly more likely to pressure government concessions, again, when their violence is directed against military targets rather than civilian ones. And this holds true even after controlling for dozens of, of tactical confounds like the capability of the group, uh, the capability of uh, government opposition, the, the nature of terrorist demands, et cetera. Paige Fortna has, has a very uh, similar study um, that's not yet in, in print, uh, where she also finds that terrorism is politically ineffective in the context of civil wars in particular. She also finds that engaging in terrorism by attacking civilians lowers the odds of government compliance again, after controlling for all sorts of tricky selection issues. Anna Getmansky finds that within Israel in particular, Palestinian terrorism has been politically counterproductive. Her research exploits variation in the operational outcome of terrorist attacks. When the attacks successfully detonate, the IDF is significantly more likely to seize land from the Palestinians rather than to surrender it. A bunch of studies have also looked at whether terrorism frightens citizens of target countries into supporting more dovish politicians. And we know that the answer is no. On the contrary, terrorism raises popular support for right-wing leaders who are most opposed to appeasement. Based on their data set of Palestinian attacks from 1990 to 2003, Barabi and Klor find that terrorism boosts uh, national support for right-wing parties in Israel, like the Likud. In a related study, we see that Israeli localities struck by terrorism are the most likely to gravitate to these right-wing politically intransigent parties. Uh, furthermore, we know that the bloodiest of these terrorist attacks are the most likely to induce this rightward electric sh uh, electoral shift. Um, I'm being told to hurry along. So, 
There, there's, based, there's, there's a lot more evidence here that I could run off. Um, but to understand why terrorism is such a politically ineffective tactic, I've recently conducted an online experiment on a large representative national sample of American adults. All subjects were randomly assigned to one of two conditions. In the control condition, respondents were told of a new group that relied on nonviolent tactics. And in the treatment condition, respondents were told of the exact same group, but it relied on terrorism instead of nonviolence. The only difference between the groups then was, was their tactical choices. I then asked respondents in both groups a bunch of questions to evaluate the suitability of the group as a potential negotiating partner. And across questions, those exposed to the terrorism treatment were significantly more likely to conclude that the group could not be trusted to bargain with. Even if governments were to make concessions, respondents concluded, the terrorists would continue to attack. In sum, there's a large body of empirical research finding that terrorism is a losing tactic for groups to achieve their political demands. The evidence shows that terrorism is highly correlated with political failure, that terrorism actually has an independent negative impact on the odds of government compliance, that terrorism empowers hardliners opposed to compromise, and that terrorism undermines the credibility of the perpetrators as a negotiating partner. And I think that there are some important counterterrorism implications here. The first, obviously, is that we don't need to worry so much that governments will cave in to terrorists by trying to appease them. Secondly, many people, I believe, could be deterred from supporting terrorism if only they knew its actual political effects. Polls show that public support for terrorism declines when it's seen as being politically counterproductive. The policy community should aggressively broadcast to terrorist supporters what academics have recently discovered, that terrorism will only pee the perpetrators from achieving their political demands. Thanks very much. Great, thanks a lot. And I wanna thank Cato for inviting me down here to speak. Uh, I think it's been a, a great conference so far and I'm looking forward to the panels in the afternoon as well. So, um, I'm going to speak about the nature of substate threats, um, how they may have changed over time, uh, and also look at responses. Uh, you know, D.C. is a, is a policy town, unlike, uh, you know, the rarefied air up at Columbia, where they you know, care more about theory. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the problems and, and prospects for, for dealing with substate threats. So I'll start uh, with a brief discussion of the nature of the threat. And as Ben alluded to, substate threats are nothing new for the United States. Um, if you look at any given year between 1865 and 1890, the United States was probably involved in some kind of conflict with sub-state actors known as, as Indian tribes, even though we sort of gave them the fiction of being nation states. We clearly didn't treat them as we, uh, as we treated other nation states. Uh, there were a variety of uh, bandits uh, out along the frontier that posed some sort of threat. Uh, if you get later in that period, you end up with the emergence of anarchist terrorism, uh, in the United States, including the famous Haymarket incident. So these are nothing new in the history of the Republic. Um, and I would argue that at no point has uh, a substate actor really posed an existential threat to the United States. 
Um, you know, we could argue maybe in Q&A about whether that may have changed with the introduction of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, I'm not going to talk as much about, about WMD, but I'm happy to talk about it um, in the Q&A. But in general, the threat that's posed by substate uh, actors is more to U.S. interests than U.S. survival. Um, and that's not trivial. The U.S. has a variety of interests uh, around the world, so they're important. But the, the going in position I take is that they're not an existential threat, even though they may be an important threat. So I spend a little time giving a stylized uh, format for how to think about substate threats. And I sort of say there are three broad categories. And as I say, this is stylized. One are rebels who seek to more or less directly change a political order uh, in a domestic setting. So the United States faced rebels at various points in its history, but principally we're concerned now about rebels in other people's countries. Uh, they could be U.S. allies or U.S. countries where U.S. has economic interests, et cetera. But they're one set of, of substate actor of concern. Another, and, and Max talked a lot about this, are terrorists. I won't belabor that point, but I would just say terrorists have political aims that they uh, seek to achieve through the coercive use of violence. And I think Max was very good at describing why that may not be such a great strategy, but it is <laughs> one the United States has to be concerned with. The third category is a little different, and I call them bandits, though they may not always be involved in active banditry, but they essentially have economic rather than political interests, even though those economic interests may impinge on politics in a variety of ways. So the biggest, most recent example, um, I would argue, is probably in Mexico with the, with the war against the cartels there. The cartels are not fundamentally, at least initially, interested in changing the Mexican political order, um, but they do have a lot of negative effects on the Mexican state that are of concern. But that difference in, in motivation from economic versus political, I think, is important um, in thinking about how you might treat the problems. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. So if this is a, an ongoing thing the United States has faced throughout time, uh, what's changed? You know, are, are non-state actors more threatening? I argue they are, though not, uh, not dramatically so, absent, as I said, the WMD, which I bracket. John Mueller, I think, has done great work in talking about why we may overhype the, the fear of terrorist uh, WMD, for example. But there are capabilities that actually are in the possession of non-state or sub-state actors that have changed, I think, their, their capabilities and made them somewhat more threatening. So the first is the diffusion of a set of technologies I refer to as modern infantry weapons and tactics. Um, you know, it's nothing new for rebels or terrorists to have a variety of, of, of neat toys, but particularly since the end of the Cold War, it's become easier to acquire very sophisticated systems uh, outside of state support. So during the Cold War, one of the main sources for weapons that sort of revolutionized Revolutionary War was support from one of the, one of the power blocks, either the Soviets or the United States. That's no longer the case for a variety of reasons, which we can go into in Q&A. But there are a variety of sources of pretty advanced systems, either from failed states or from cleaning out the Soviet arsenals, et cetera. And there are distribution networks that are no longer fundamentally centered around states. Uh, the, the Russian uh, trafficker, Viktor Boot, who was arrested a couple of years ago, is the sort of premier example of this non-state, though quasi-state affiliated um, substate actor who provides the, these arms to folks. So that's, a, that's one change. This capability, again, not revolutionary, but it increases the ability of substate actors to impose cost and challenge U.S. interests. The second, I would argue, and this is, will come as a surprise to no one, is the improvised explosive device. Um, you know, it's nothing new for terrorist rebels or bandits to use mine warfare or booby traps or things like that. But the sophistication and evolution of the improvised explosive device over roughly the past 20 years has been significant. Um, and the United States, despite throwing billions of dollars at the problem, has 
fundamentally lost a lot of the arms race against IEDs. Um, we're, we're just, you know, Jaedo, God bless them, they have not gotten ahead of this problem, nor is it clear that they really could. Um, so that's been a big change in substate actor capability in terms of, of being able to impose costs. Third is suicide bombing. Again, not a totally new phenomenon, but one that's become much more dispersed for a variety of reasons over the past couple of decades. Um, and it gives terrorists a sort of, uh, particularly, but also rebels, um, not so much bandits, uh, a precision bombing capability, right? This is their precision attack. Um, they're able to you know, very precisely locate um, and attack targets in a pretty devastating way uh, that was much more difficult before the advent and diffusion of suicide bombing. Um, and then I didn't talk about this as much in the paper itself, but I'm going to add it as I go forward because I, I've been convinced over the past couple of weeks that, that this needs to be added, are two additional categories that are somewhat related. One is cyber. Um, I'm not a sort of cyber doomsayer that, you know, that terrorists will be able to bring down the United States overnight with a cyber attack, but it is a real capability um, that's been a force multiplier for substate actors. Um, and then finally is financial. I don't think we think about the financial aspect of this as much, but you have to pay for those modern infantry weapons. You have to pay for IEDs, et cetera. Um, and, you know, sort of people, what people have referred to as the dark side of globalization, the ability of finance to flow from a variety of licit and illicit sources to a variety of licit and illicit ends um, has been a big change. And it's one the United States has become cognizant of in terms of, of addressing uh, but I don't think it's got the attention necessarily that it deserves. So I think those are the big changes that have increased the threat, though, again, I want to be clear, I don't think it's a, an existential threat. So how does the U.S. respond? I would argue the U.S. response, though we have other tools, has primarily focused on what I call the discrete and discriminate use of force. Um, this is a capability that evolved in response uh, to the post-Vietnam period when the United States was unable to use massive force for a variety of political reasons. The political costs were too high, and you certainly saw that uh, in the response to the Iranian hostage crisis, where there was a, an attempt to use uh, discrete and discriminate force, that is the careful application of a tailored and limited use of force to achieve political ends that wasn't very successful. So the president was pre presented with uh, either the choice of escalating, which was politically unpalatable, or of, of de-escalating um, and letting the crisis play out. And without this middle way option of discrete and discriminate use of force, uh, you know, we let the hostage situation play out. So there have been three major developments, um, some starting in Vietnam, some starting after, um, that I think has given the United States an enormous capability to use force in this manner. The first uh, is the precision revolution in terms of targeting. So laser guided bombs, then GPS guided bombs. This is uh, a made a orders of magnitude difference in the ability to be discrete and discriminate the second is the ISR revolution. So, you know, people typically talk about drones, but it's much more than that. Drones are really sort of the tip of the spear of this uh, entire apparatus that allows the U.S. to find and locate a variety of substate targets to apply force. And the third is the special operations revolution, uh, this, this movement in the United States to really emphasize and empower special operations um, over the past 30 years. And it's made a significant difference. So this is a great capability. It's done some, some important things. One, it's lowered the political cost, I would argue, almost to zero. You can see that things that were impossible in 1981 are so routine, they don't even make the paper now. Uh, another is that it's highly responsive. Um, policymakers are not particularly patient in this town. I don't need to tell you that. Um, this discrete and discriminate use of force can be applied more or less at will by the president under the understandings we've come to now. And it's highly controllable. Right? You can sort of aim it like the Death Star at particular targets if you can find them. So that's a very attractive set of, uh, of characteristics for policymakers. But I think there are a couple of problems. One, 
over-reliance on this, not that it's a, it's a tool we shouldn't use, but over-reliance on this creates backlash. You can see the recent events in, in Libya when the United States discreetly and discriminately rendered someone from Libya. Uh, there was a significant backlash in that country. Um, so that's one issue. Another is it undermines international legitimacy. I'm not a, you know, a, a, a big uh, more hugs for the Europeans kind of guy, but it's still important that your allies and your domestic population support the policy. Uh, the targeting of Anwar al-Awlaki caused a lot of controversy even amongst sort of hawkish people in the United States. So that's a concern. There are physical costs, even though the political cost is low, it's not cheap to run this apparatus at the rate we've been, been running it. So that's a concern. And then finally, I would argue there can be transformation in the nature of, of sub-state actors if force is misapplied against them. So one could imagine uh, applying force against terrorists that creates such a movement that it leads to a larger and broader rebel movement. One could imagine misapplying force against uh, bandits so that they, they move from having purely economic objectives to having political objectives, like getting the use of force against them to stop, et cetera. So it's not that this is a, uh, something we should get away from, but it's something we should uh, have as but one aspect of the toolkit. So I'll talk briefly about three other things. Maybe we can talk more in Q&A because I'm about to get the hook. So the first is covert action and the use of surrogates, right? Having people other than the United States on the hook to do this, uh, our own sub-state actors in a sense. The second is to emphasize the capabilities of partners and allies. I worked this past summer for uh, the NATO special operations component in Afghanistan. NATO, you know, whatever you think of NATO as a broader organization, has a lot of special operations capability that could be uh, applied if we thought to. And then finally, uh, financial cooperation. So there has to be more emphasis uh, on the, the fighting of this new financial flows. And there is some now, um, but relative to what we spend on the discrete and discriminate use of force, uh, it's it's clearly underemphasized. Um, and the final thing before Ben kicks me off the stage, you know, but given the the enduring problem of sub-state actors, uh, people in D.C. need to think about this as a management of the problem rather than seeking solutions to the problem. This is it's not going to go away. Terrorism, rebels, bandits, they're not going away. You have to think of the way to best manage the problem. Thank you very much. Greetings. Thanks for the invite. Um, I work in what we could call the illicit side of globalization, the dark side, I think the previous speaker uh, called it. Typically, globalization is something that is celebrated, embraced, cheered, and so on. But when it comes to the illicit side, um, there's a tendency to hyperventilate, um, describe the situation as the sky is falling, uh, and there's been uh, a sense of America and the world are essentially under siege, if you will, from what is perceived as a new and unprecedented threat. I'll just read to you a, a quote from the White House a couple of years ago. Um, Transnational organized crime, quote, poses a significant and growing threat to national and international security with dire implications for public safety, public health, democratic institutions, and economic stability. And this was its strategy to combat transnational crime, addressing converging threats uh, to security. That type of description of the problem is actually not particularly new. It uh, took off in the aftermath of the Cold War. Uh, John Kerry and others um, you know, partly made names for themselves describing this new and unprecedented threat. Uh, here in Washington, uh, we have pundits and, and others who basically 
have sounded the alarm bells uh, over this problem. As Moises Naim has put it, uh, smugglers, uh, copycats, and hijackers are, are, are hijacking uh, the global economy. And he basically is asking us to mobilize in an unprecedented way to do something about it. My argument here, and it's based on a, on a, on a book I recently finished, basically a 300-year history of the United States through the lens of, of various illicit trading practices. Uh, my argument here is that, especially in Washington, but policy communities elsewhere as well, suffer from a severe case, a particularly severe case of historical amnesia. Uh, I can't think of any other policy area, frankly, that is quite as afflicted as this one in terms of forgetting about the past. And in this case, it's actually about forgetting our own uh, past, which has a rather uh, murky, uh, seamy history, frankly. Uh, so much so that, as I argue in this book, illicit trade was fundamental to the very making of America. It's founding economic development, transformation, rise to a global power, and so on. And anti-smuggling campaigns of various sorts were actually part of the expansion of the federal government and what we have today is, is overflowing prisons, for example. Um, let me just, in the short period of time I have, let me just give you um, some highlights of uh, the argument uh, uh, in brief. The mantra today, for example, is that our borders are out of control and that we need to uh, regain control of our borders before we can even talk about, for example, immigration reform, which is a hot topic again here in Washington. Well, the very language of regaining control is misleading uh, because it suggests that if, you know, to regain something suggests you once had control uh, in the first place. Uh, there's sort of a sense of a mythical past of perfect control of secure borders and so on. And frankly, for better or for worse, hyper-porous borders have been the defining feature of America, not secure borders. What's so striking about the U.S.-Mexico border today is not how porous it is. It is extremely porous. But what's striking about that border is how hyper-policed it is and surveilled and monitored and regulated and, and so on. We doubled the size of the Border Patrol in the 1990s. We doubled the size of the Border Patrol again in the last decade. And if we go through with the present... Uh, uh, calls for immigration reform, we're going to actually uh, significantly increase it again, uh, doubling. Um, the reality is that the U.S.-Mexico relationship was in many ways founded on illicit trades of, of various sorts. The same goes for the U.S.-Canada border, though we, we tend to be obsessed with pointing fingers south rather than looking at the history of our relations with our northern neighbor as, as, as well. Um, look at the case of immigration. Uh, when the United States imposed the Chinese Exclusion Act in the late uh, 19th century, Chinese laborers did not stop coming to San Francisco. They instead were diverted to Canada and then Mexico and then were smuggled across those borders. Striking resemblance to the situation today when you push down on migration flows from one spot, they tend to not stop but actually enter uh, in a new area. The same thing has in fact happened in the case of drug enforcement at the border. Uh, the Mexican situation, which, you know, tens of thousands of Mexicans have died since 2006 in the nation's escalating uh, drug wars. Uh, Mexico has been the conduit for a majority of the drugs entering the United States. But we have to realize that this is an old story. Uh, in fact, it's partly a self-created problem. In 1980, uh, it was Miami and Florida that seemed out of control and under siege. 
And the mobilization of federal and military resources to put a stop to that did not stop the drug flow, but actually pushed it westward uh, to Mexico. And then the sort of uh, unintended uh, side effect of that initiative was to actually be a boom, you know, actually facilitate the rise of Mexican traffickers to become the dominant players in supplying uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, drug market. And again, look at history. We don't even have to go that far back at the Prohibition era. The Detroit-Windsor uh, uh, connection was as much of a smuggling hub during the Prohibition years in the 1920s as any U.S.-Mexico border crossing uh, is today. And it included high levels of violence, extraordinarily high levels of, of corruption, and a sense of being under siege uh, and under, uh, out of control. So that's very briefly a border story. Look at intellectual property theft. The message that the United States sends to the world uh, today, uh, frankly, is um, do as I say, not as I did. The United States was a hotbed of intellectual property theft in the, in the 19th century, arguably the world's hotbed of intellectual property theft. Our very early industrialization process was based on the th outright theft of uh, British industrial technologies and actually wooing uh, workers, industrial workers from England to the United States against, uh, in defiance of British immigration laws. Uh, Samuel Slater, if you look him up online, he's described as the father of the American Industrial Revolution. He smuggled himself, essentially, uh, to America against British laws. He was hired, actually, by Moses Brown, one of the founders of my university, uh, who had smuggled equipment for him to use, which he turned out to cannibalize and, and create uh, his own mill in, in Pawtucket. And now it's a, a celebrated story of America's early um, industrialization. There's also a lot of uh, anxiety and hanging today about the connection between various illicit trades and armed conflict. We see this in Colombia in the case of cocaine. We see it in the case of uh, uh, opium in Afghanistan, uh, blood diamonds in uh, parts of, of Africa and so on. Even entire Hollywood movies have been based on, on these themes. Uh, I think even one movie was called Blood Diamonds with Leonardo DiCaprio. But again, a bit of history is a useful reality check here. Uh, I cannot think of any civil war in world history that has been more dependent on a so-called conflict commodity than our very own civil war. The American Civil War on the, part of the, on the side of the South was entirely sustained or substantially sustained uh, uh, by illicit cotton exports in violation of the Union blockade of Southern ports. It was the ability to smuggle cotton out in exchange for arms and other war supplies that basically helped the Confederacy going against all odds. We could, in fact, using today's lingo, we could very much call it blood cotton, right? Uh, and Go even further back. Our very war of independence uh, was substantially also had an had a extraordinarily important smuggling side to it, so much so that it would have been impossible for George Washington to frankly um, uh, supply his troops without massive levels of smuggled gunpowder from Europe and, and elsewhere. And again, one of the founders of my university, John Brown, made a fortune doing this. Yes, it was about grievance, but it was also about greed. He ended up, after the American Revolution, he emerged as the richest man in Rhode Island, partly because of the money he had made from the American Revolution. So it's not just new wars that are so profitable and based on illicit trade. I'm running out of time here, but one more story that I should tell you is a story about technology, because a lot of the narrative today about the threat of illicit globalization is about how these uh, non-state criminal actors are empowered by new technologies and, and so forth. It's very true. It's undeniable. But it's an old story. It's just the latest chapter in an old story. Frankly, 
you know, the invention of the steamship, the railway, the automobile. These are fundamental inventions that have transformed uh, the national economy and the global economy on both the illicit and the illicit side. And that's a continuing story. And it's arguably not more important today than it was in the 19th century or the early 20th century. Also, it's a double-edged sword. The very technologies that have aided uh, illicit actors have also actually greatly aided uh, law enforcement. You look at, for example, the invention of the telephone, uh, which greatly enabled bootleggers in the 1920s to you know, uh, collaborate and, and uh, coordinate drops. Uh, well, it also led to the invention of an entirely new law enforcement technique, which is core to any law enforcement today, which is called eavesdropping, uh, wiretapping, right? Uh, this was, so basically, this captures the double-edged nature of it. Last but not least, um, you know, the danger here is that in the rush to recognize the importance and seriousness of this problem, which I very much agree with, that we need to do more and take it very seriously, the danger is that by describing it as somehow a fundamentally new and, and frightening security threat, that we over-securitize, over-militarize, use tools that are appropriate for, in other policy realms, such as um, uh, especially in military realm, for uh, law enforcement, basically what are law enforcement tasks. It's a very awkward and sometimes, in fact, dangerous fit. And we're encouraging other countries often to do things with their law, uh, militaries in a law enforcement capacity that we would never ask our own military to do. In fact, our law uh, forbids us uh, to do. The last thing I'll say is that don't get the impression that I'm arguing that nothing's new and different and that um, this isn't a serious problem. It certainly is. Uh, I don't mean to suggest that or imply that. Uh, but as Mark Twain put it, and I can't quote anyone smarter than that, uh, history does not uh, repeat itself, uh, but it does rhyme. And so there's a lot of parallels, actually, today to in the past that we uh, too often gloss over in discussing these issues. Thank you very much. Well, good morning, and uh, thank you to Cato for the invitation to participate. I'm going to make an argument that includes uh, the following points. One is that non-state threats are not as new as we tend to think. Uh, secondly, that American perceptions of non-state threats have at least as much to do with how we Americans uh, view our own needs and our own habits and our own way of looking at America's place in the world as they do with the reality of the threat that's beyond our borders. That there's a disconnect between perception and reality in that regard that is mostly in the direction of overstating threats and that recent experience demonstrates uh, that there are severe limitations on what the U.S. can do about any of this. Now, as far as the uh, newness is concerned, Austin has already spoken about U.S. history. Let me just go back a little bit farther. Uh, the Romans were dealing with rebellion and insurrection and insurgency and terrorism and civil war. So, you know, all, all that stuff's been around and much more has been around really for centuries, if not millennia. As far as the American view of things are concerned, I should apologize at the outset to John Quincy Adams, who was probably speaking accurately when he spoke, but America does go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And indeed, we Americans tend to define our place in the world to a large extent with regard to how we are standing up to confronting and vanquishing particular monsters. During the Cold War, the USSR served the role of monster very well, and then the Cold War was over and the Soviet Union collapsed, and we kind of fumbled around for about 10 years deciding what sort of era we were in. And then along came 
and we had someone declare a war on terror, and a lot of people thought, well, that, now we've got a new monster. Uh, and it's, it's served that purpose, um, particularly um, in the way in which a lot of the other non-state threats that we're talking about and that come under the purview of this panel in terms of uh, weapons proliferation, civil wars, uh, organized crime, are often evaluated in terms of what their connection might be to terrorism. Now, to assess the actual degree of threat, and what I'm going to say here is consistent with what Austin said, it's just a kind of different cut at it. I think you have to consider different possible ways in which the activity of sub-state actors in general can threaten U.S. interests. And I can think of three basic ways in particular. One is that sub-state violence may give rise to possible new hostile regimes, hostile to us. That's a way of looking at things that we, we uh, got into the habit of uh, viewing the world during the Cold War. You know, civil wars and insurgencies would take place, and what worried, about, uh, what worried us at the time was, is there going to be a new Soviet ally that will emerge you know, from this civil war? Uh, there are several reasons why the actual threat or any imperative to do something about this for this reason is very limited. One is we are not facing a monolith on the other side with whom we are engaging in a zero-sum game. That wasn't even the case during the Cold War, even though we often perceived it that way. It's even less the case now. It's hard to predict what the orientation of a new regime is going to be based just on its pronouncements and behavior as an opposition movement. And one reason it's hard to do that is that incumbency has a major effect. Once in power, a regime has assets. It has a fixed address. It has a stake in being part of a larger international system that it didn't have when it was a mere opposition movement or guerrilla movement or insurgency or what have you. It has more to lose. Globalization has a lot to do with this, and we've seen the effects in such things as the reduction in state-sponsored terrorism over the last 25 years or so, particularly highlighted by the amazing turnaround of someone like Muammar Gaddafi a little over a decade ago. Uh, not being part of the globalized system had caused him to pay a real price. A second possible way in which the substate violence and disorder can threaten us is by non-state actors directly harming our interests, even if they never take power as a regime. And here is where we're mainly talking about terrorist groups, and I'm not going to say much about this because it's really been covered by Max and others. Um, I just make a couple of additional points. One is that how Americans see terrorism through the years has been affected at least as much by our own political and emotional milieu of the time as it has by what the terrorists are actually doing out there. And I would ask you to think about the 1970s, when we had, during much of the middle part of that decade, a whole lot of terrorism that was going on right here in the United States, including a car bomb a few blocks away from here, uh, a bomb in the uh, US Capitol building, and a whole lot else. But we didn't declare a war on terror because we were just coming out of Watergate, coming out of Vietnam. We had much, more, much different views about what our security agencies ought to be doing or ought not to be doing. It had a lot more to do with us rather than what terrorists were doing. And the other point I'd make is that, well, Al-Qaeda 
has filled in, to some extent, the role of, of uh, monster to destroy. We've used that term in such a loose way that it reifies something that really isn't out there in the sense that even many so-called Al-Qaeda affiliates are much more concerned with local issues than with going after us. And that Osama bin Laden, when he was alive, never did get a strong consensus among even Sunni militants for his whole idea of going after the far enemy, namely us, rather than the near enemy. A third way in which this kind of sub-state violence can threaten our interest is that the very violence and instability itself is a problem. Not just that there's a particular group that can hurt us or that somebody forms a new regime. And this, this kind of concern can take two forms. One, and this gets back to terrorism again, is the idea of terrorists exploiting disorderly places of the world to create new safe havens. And there are two problems with this line of thinking. There are two limitations to it. One is really disorderly places are not a very good place for terrorists to operate for the same general reasons it's not a very good place for legitimate operations to operate. It's harder for them to do things when they're surrounded by nothing but disorder. They rely on some orderly infrastructure and communication and so on as well, just as the rest of us do. The other point is that safe havens, as far as terrorist groups are concerned, are quite frankly overrated. And if you look at the, um, uh, what are the main ingredients to the degree of threat that an Al-Qaeda or someone else poses, it has less to do with having a particular chunk of real estate than it does with a lot of other things, ideological appeal, technical ability, and so on. But the idea of a safe haven appeals to our spatial way of thinking about threats and whether we're winning or losing. The other aspect of instability itself and civil war being a, a problem is the idea of civil wars spreading. And this could endanger more of our interests. And I would argue that true spread of a civil war actually is confined to some pretty specific geographic circumstances, like some artillery shells from the Syrian civil war finding their way across the Turkish border. Uh, the Iraq war never really did spread and still hasn't as much in a really literal sense of spread uh, than many people feared. However, it is clearly true that civil war and disorder can have other sorts of contagion or demonstration effects, even if it's not literally a spread of the civil war. And we can look at the whole phenomenon that we call the Arab Spring over the last three years. Clearly, there are contagion effects here of, what, of disorder in one country having an effect on what's going on someplace else. The problem is this really doesn't give us a clear implication as far as US policy is concerned, both because it's not always apparent what's good and what's bad from the standpoint of US interest. And even if it were clear, most of this is unpredictable in terms of where it starts and how it's going to play out. No one could have predicted that the abuse of a Tunisian fruit vendor three years ago was going to be the starting point for what we call the Arab Spring. Now, one of the biggest forms of uh, contagion effect in uh, the Middle East over these last uh, several years has not been something the US didn't do, but something it, it did do. Namely, I'm referring to the Iraq war and how it was clearly a stimulus to sectarian consciousness, especially of Shia versus Sunni that we see playing out in Syria and, and elsewhere. And that leads me to my final set of points, uh, which has to do with exactly what the US can do about any of this. Iraq and Libya, also a highly disorderly and dangerous place these days, just as Iraq is. And Afghanistan, 
very different in many other respects. And I don't want to imply I'm equating these in terms of the reasons for US interventions or, or anything else. But they do have this in common. Brilliant, stunning success in bringing about the uh, change of regime and toppling the old one. Dismal failure in the use of military force and dealing with the sub-state violence that followed. And I think a lot of this has to do with uh, a pattern that Richard Betts observed several years ago when he noted that there's no such thing as a limited, impartial, external intervention to quell a civil war. Either you're tipping the balance in favor of one side or the other, and that, that means it's not impartial, or you have to go in with such overwhelming force that you gain control of everything and subdue everything and everyone. And the problem with thinking about U.S. interests worldwide is that it's hard to see any situations of sub-state conflict where the United States either has such a great interest in quelling the violence that's going on that it's worth the cost to go in in such a big way that everyone's overwhelmed, or having enough of an interest in one side or the other prevailing that it makes sense to tip the balance. And something like the Syrian civil war uh, is a current instance of this. Another point I'd add to that is that whenever we do do anything that's even seen as tipping a balance or taking sides, we inevitably antagonize somebody else and often make enemies who weren't necessarily an enemy to begin with. And I would make reference to someone like the Afghan Taliban, which is a, uh, a, a quintessentially insular group concerned far more about the political and social order in Afghanistan than anything outside Af Afghanistan's borders. And it, the Taliban care about us only insofar as we interfere with their plans and ambitions for the political and social order inside Afghanistan. And that leads to my final observation, uh, and that is that the, the customary American way of viewing substate threats has an unfortunate element of a kind of vicious circle. Uh, or a self-fulfilling prophecy to it. By tending to overstate or overperceive threats, this leads to greater efforts overseas to neutralize or defeat the perceived threats than would have been the case with a more accurate appraisal, including bearing in mind some of the things that my fellow panelists have said, of the danger. And these efforts, especially ones involving the use of military force, then elicit responses that turn some of the presumed threats into real ones. Thank you. So good morning, and mindful of the fact that we are now apparently the only thing standing between you and lunch. Um, I will try to keep my comments brief. Um, this was a fun set of papers to read. Um, I think they speak to a number of very timely and uh, newsworthy events, uh, certainly explicitly or implicitly. A lot of these issues are behind uh, many of the headlines that we see uh, currently and have for some time. Um, so again, with an eye to brevity, my job, as I see it, is to provide both general commentary um, and particularly in the context of uh, sort of policy-friendly forum and the fact that this is going to be an edited volume, encourage the authors to refine some points for clarity, draw out some policy implications, um, and encourage coherence with the edited volume's overall theme of uh, sort of threat, question mark, subtext of threat inflation. Um, 
So Max, um, so first I'm gonna, when I start each paper, I'll, I'll reframe your, I'll articulate what my version of your point was and try to reframe it um, in the context of the edited volume. Um, so my reading of the point of your, of your piece is that the terrorist threat is inflated at least in part because of a faulty assumption that it can't be deterred. Um, so that you know, by, we, we tend to inflate where we're, we're over, you know, we're getting ourselves all riled up about a threat that we, we actually could, um, we could deter it. Um, you then walk us through why this assumption is faulty. We can't deter the practitioners of terrorism, but we can actually deter their supporters and basically leave the practitioners high and dry. Um, I think you could put this a lot more up front and sort of tying your argument uh, to the volumes. Um, a couple of more substantive points. As I read it, there's an embedded assumption in your argument that terrorism is designed explicitly to communicate only to the target state, so only to the, st the state in which the terrorism is occurring or um, whose citizens are actually uh, hit with these events, and not actually to communicate to the terrorist domestic supporters, uh, which I think is sort of precisely along, uh, you know, precisely to emphasize efficacy, to advertise their status, uh, to advertise their point. Um, again, precisely along lines that you suggest but don't fully develop. So these are issues of outbidding and that kind of thing. Um, you, they can also be designed to uh, communicate to foreign supporters, again, as a signal of commitment um, to the cause and, and other issues of outbidding. Um, so this might be something to at least mention or, or, or sort of explicitly bracket. Um, even in a non-academic context, I think there's a lot of discussion of these alternative audiences for any particular given terrorist act. I'd also encourage you to draw out the policy implications a bit more. Um, specifically, it's not entirely clear why we still have terrorism. Um, so if it's so ineffective, I mean, it's one thing to sort of argue that the practitioners can't be deterred. Um, but particularly if your large uh, policy implication is that we need to get the supporters to stop supporting it. Assuming some sort of evolutionary imperative or some sort of equilibrium model, it's not entirely clear from your description why they haven't figured this out yet. Um, are, you know, how, how have they not gotten the memo? And I think this is crucial from a policy, one, it's an intellectually, I think, vital link in your argument. But from a policy perspective, if you're going to suggest that we educate people about this, I think it's helpful to figure out why they haven't figured it out yet on their own. Um, is it, are they just unobservant? Um, are they, do they have differently biased sources of information? Um, is the terrorist survival trajectory simply shorter than the population's learning curve, uh, which seems historically unlikely? Um, or are there particular campaigns of terrorism shorter than the learning curve? Um, so there's a variety of other explanations that could be made, but I think that's a link um, that probably should be made both academically and policy-wise. Um, Austin, so the point as I see it of your paper is that the world has changed uh, a bit, both targets and our capabilities, though perhaps our capabilities have changed more. Uh, this is not an existential threat, but we do need to be intelligent about how we deal, about it, deal with it, uh, avoid unnecessary expense, avoid creating risks, and generally uh, shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, I think the piece does an excellent job uh, on a couple of points. One, laying out the types of sub-state actors um, and the types of threats that they pose and how they emerged or developed uh, various capabilities, and then two, uh, the changes in US capabilities during the same time frame. I think the piece could be stronger in terms of weaving them these aspects together. So basically, you're outlining threats and you're outlining counter strategies. Um, I think your point is basically, we've got this, more or less. So, but I think you could do a better job of lining them up so that we can actually see you know, these maybe threats we actually do have covered, um, and thus that you know, proclamations to the contrary might be a little overinflated. Um, I think you also admit that differentiating between the three types of actors that you identify, so terrorists, rebels, and bandits, is important for policymakers because policies designed to combat one could be totally ineffective or actually counterproductive against another. 
Um, so this raises the issue of how do we tell which ones are which? Is there some sort of differential diagnosis? Are there some sort of telling behavioral characteristics that will allow us to tell which one is which? Um, particularly since you raised the, the prospect of essentially double hatting. Um, so some groups have characteristics of both are deliberately hybridized. Um, does this foil even the US sort of expanded toolkit that you outline? Um, I spent the whole time drawing Venn diagrams in my head, which probably says more about me than than one would prefer, but you know, there's a there's a possible thing of overlapping skill sets, and, and you know, can you tell what world you're living in such that you can calibrate your policy response appropriately? Some of this may go beyond the scope of the paper, but you could at least frame it as here's a here are things that policymakers should be asking questions about, um, and uh, in addition to your pol other policy suggestions. Uh, Peter, I see the point of your piece is arguing that these threats are not, shall we say, totally new. Uh, we have seen this movie before, and we survived it. Um, for all of the historical lessons, and for those of you who haven't had a chance to read the paper, here's some great historical examples. Um, I would emphasize and return to the point that we survived this. Um, even for those cases where you make a very persuasive argument that some of these phenomena are basically unavoidable parts of an evolutionary chain or an evolutionary trajectory, in which case the argument is, yes, they're bad or inconvenient, um, but we probably can't change them, and we did survive it. Um, I think you do a good job of pointing out some of the inconsistencies and ironies in US policy, um, but it's not always entirely tied back to or clear about how this, your overall argument about how this constitutes or fails to constitute a threat. Similarly, you emphasize the collateral damage of a lot of uh, US policies, which I think you could move up more up front. Um, and you hint sort of at multiple sections at points in the piece, um, and I think you could make this a lot clearer. Um, finally, there's an issue of sort of what should we be doing, right? So we don't want to ignore history, we don't want to overplay it, we don't want to underplay it. Um, at a couple of points, you suggest market openness actually reduces smuggling or illicit trafficking uh, by removing some of the incentives and making formerly illicit trades legal. Um, if, you're in, if you're advocating increased market openness, this is Cato, I wouldn't be shy about it. Um, <laughs> If, uh, if, as a couple, a couple points in your argument, uh, you, you mentioned that there's, there's sort of an over-focus on supply-side problems, uh, would demand-side-based policies actually work, or would they be or counterproductive or ineffective in other ways? Um, and again, sort of emphasizing the, the, you know, the use of the historical examples, the fact that we sort of survived this before, the fact that it in indicates that it may be an unavoidable evolutionary phenomenon. Um, you say we don't want to overplay it, we don't want to underplay it. Be explicit about what we should do with it. You know, read your history book, take a deep breath, have a cup of tea, it'll be fine. Um, last but not least, Paul, um, I read uh, your piece, again, as you sort of explicitly said in your, in your presentation, um, substate threats are not new and they may actually be decreasing. Uh, the reason we think they're a threat is because of various misconceptions about America, um, how the world works, and our role in it. Um, I do read that there's a little bit of a tension between two arguments that you present. Um, so one, you argue there are these misconceptions that lead us to do or think all sorts of misguided things. Um, but you also argue that there are a lot of genuinely unclear options out there. Um, so at some points, there's, there's a little bit of a tension between these. Um, at several points, you articulate very nicely the elements of sort of Cold War habits that color um, these, these misconceptions or, or uh, the, the conception of how America thinks about itself and led, leads to various forms of threat inflation. I'd be a lot more specific about, I mean, I think the, the John Quincy Adams things is a great sort of bracketing, but I would then tailor it down and be very precise up front about saying, these are the aspects that we've sort of gotten stuck in our heads and moving forward, this is bad, and let me explain to you why. 
Um, particularly then at the end of each section when you get done describing, um, so each of the three substate threats that you identify um, in the piece, you, you describe very nicely the gap between the rhetoric and the reality. I'd be very explicit about then assigning that gap to uh, these misconceptions as well. Uh, your other point is sort of the, uh, the outcomes aren't clear, so it's not always clear were we to intervene or, or, or make a choice which one would be optimal. Um, it's, not, it's not entirely clear what this has to do with perceptions. Uh, it's a point well worth making. I don't know if you want to sort of bifurcate the argument and make it sort of clear that you're making, saying two different things. Or you could say that, look, this could possibly be an issue of perception insofar as our assessment of these situations is perhaps more black and white than the, the facts actually merit. Uh, but we tend to cast them in this light because of various perceptual issues in terms of how we approach them and, and the types of facts that we take in and things that we ignore. Um, all right, and in conclusion, I think on the face of it, it's a little odd that all of your examples are about policy versus states and regimes, um, given that you sort of led into this as a sub-state proposition. Um, as you acknowledge, sort of US actions against states actually create some of the various um, sub-state threats uh, that it claims it's worried about, although you argue that we ought not to be. Um, so again, it's a point worth making, but I don't think it flows as nicely as, from your argument as refocusing on this on some other US limitations. Uh, so specifically, you know, again, the, the impartial interventions don't end civil wars. We can't always tell which side uh, we would pick were we to intervene. Um, and if we intervene partially, we risk turning uh, sort of imaginary fears into real ones. So thank you. Um, before we go to Q&A, does anyone um, want to uh, respond to Jen or argue with each other? Always a dangerous proposition. You can try to work it in. We encourage uh, contention. Uh, so let's, uh, let's go to questions. Uh, same rules as, uh, as Justin announced, so I won't say them again unless people violate them grossly. Uh, we'll start off with the gentleman here in front with the beard. Uh, Jim Lowen, um, independent sociologist. A uh, couple of questions for you, A folks. Um, Mr. Abrams, um, you uh, basically argued that terrorism is always counterproductive, and I hope you're right, but I just wonder if you comment briefly on where it seems to have worked because it really did seem to instill societally wide uh, terror, and that would be in West Africa and in Central Africa over the last 10 or 20 years on occasion. And Mr. Andreas, I think you have a book that just came out or it has come out or maybe is going to come out about what exactly in American history sounds really good. And if you'll tell us one sentence about it, maybe we'll all then run out and buy it. Yeah. Just uh, can we, can we? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, great. So, yeah, I mean, I get this question a lot. You know, the question is, does terrorism work? Um, and it depends on what you mean by terrorism, and it depends on what you mean by working. In some ways, when you think about it, depending on your definition of what, you know, constitutes success, you could say that terrorism has a 100% success rate. You know, terrorism, by definition, is violent. It instills fear. It has some negative impact on civilians. So, I mean, if those are your metrics for success, then, then yes, you could easily say um, that terrorism is quite successful. A lot of my research is focused um, on the political outcome of terrorism, specifically how well does it function as a coercive tactic. When groups attack civilian targets in particular, 
does it in fact increase the odds of government concessions? And I find um, that it doesn't. But I don't mean to stipulate um, that terrorists only have one objective. And this is precisely why the fact that it's politically ineffective um, doesn't lead to the you know, complete stoppage of terrorism because terrorists can derive uh, utility in all sorts of different ways from their actions. You know, some people go into terrorism um, because actually they think it's fun or they like to travel around or they like to harm people. Um, so we need to be very clear about what we mean and what we don't mean um, by uh, terrorist success. So. Yeah. Sure. You know, it's interesting that you, that you asked that because there, there, so there's this, as I suggested in the presentation, there's this growing body of, uh, of research on whether terrorism works in terms of positively impacting the political outcome from the vantage of the perpetrators. And I will say, to your credit, um, that there is pretty much one main discrepant study, uh, which hasn't come out yet in print, but which is quite a good study. And that sample is restricted to African countries. Um, and so uh, it, that may be somehow anomalous. I suspect that the, that the leverage of pressure is different there, that in other studies, we're talking about coercion, whether governments are more inclined to make concessions, whereas in African countries, um, often terrorism is in the context of civil war, and there's no willingness to, con to concede concessions on the part of the governments, but rather they tend to get overrun by protracted levels of violence. So there might be different uh, mechanisms there. Um, but uh, yeah, not all of the studies show that terrorism lowers the odds of government concessions. Um, and I'll just, uh, I'll stop there. But, but another thing I want to say is that um, this, this research, you know, is uh, probabilistic, not deterministic. So generally speaking, this is the effect. I don't mean to suggest that this mechanism or these findings apply in every single case, of course. Okay. Uh, uh, thanks for that question. Um, it wasn't really a question. It was just a blatant plug for my book. Um, so I, and I, because of that, I want to make sure that the audience is clear that I do not pay him to, <laughs> to say that or, you know, um, but having said that, um, I, you know, frankly, my comments today um, were kind of some highlights from the book. Uh, and the chapter that I'm doing for the edited volume is drawn basically from the book. And um, I happen to have a copy <laughs> with me. So you can look at the fabulous cover from long distance up there. Um, and uh, it is about 30% off on Amazon. Thank you. <laughs> oh, OK. Uh, let's go to the gentleman here. Right up here with us. My name is Stephen Shore. Oh, my name is Stephen Shore. I, I always felt that when we talk about terrorism in since 9-11, that the sub the it's sort of un, the implicit assumption is that we're really dealing with Muslim and terrorism. That that I think arguably much of the most of the terrorism in the world is not Muslim and not directed against the United States. And he even acts, for example some isolated gunmen shooting up a school or a movie theater that in most nations would be considered acts of terrorism are never described that way. Uh, and all my second question is, 
no one has spoken about there are relation cases where a political party has a terrorist wing, uh, like Hezbollah or Sinn Fein, and whether the the presence of having a terrorist wing, which the the legal party can publicly dissociate its itself itself from, while it it gains in some way, uh, needs to be talked about in contrast to a purely terrorist group. That it seems that the the Nazi Party in in nineteen thirty certainly had terrorist people who were not dis- um, treated by the law, and it arguably helped the party to come to power by having a terrorist wing and with the subtle interplay between something like an iceberg, with what you saw above the surface was only part of the entire structure. Okay, maybe, Paul, you want to start with the left right here? Uh, why don't I address the, the first question, um, and perhaps Max or someone else can uh, tackle the second one. Uh, I would uh, use your first question as an occasion to refer back to um, to my larger thesis about how this uh, stems from our habitual American way of viewing enemies. And uh, we like to have a specific name and a face attached to our enemies. And that's that's why, you know, Al-Qaeda has, has uh, filled that purpose. And I think you're your point is a very appropriate one in that uh, that way of looking at things has artificially narrowed our view of terrorism in general, not just in um, perhaps uh, giving less attention than we might otherwise would to, say, uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, which uh, Rich Armitage once described as the A-team of international terrorism, Al-Qaeda being only the B-team. Um, uh, but also, uh, you know, what, what would be a, f- a future wave of terrorism? And, and finally, I, w- I would just note, consistent with your observation and, 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 and my thesis, that when the current Obama administration uh, published a couple of years back a national strategy on counterterrorism, I think that was almost, that was almost the exact title, you look at it and it's really a national strategy for war in al-Qaeda. And all of the rest of international terrorism or terrorism in general was confined to about two paragraphs uh, in a 20-page document that said, well, there are these other things, too. Um, so I, I think what you talk about is, is partly a reflection of uh, my thesis about uh, American attitudes. Uh, the one of you guys want to talk to the question in particular? The, uh, the point that you raise, I mean, about the uh, parent organization that might be political and the militant you know, offshoot, um, that, that, that's entirely common. That's really the norm in a way. What you have are these non-state actors who at least express some kind of a political end. Um, and they tend to use a, a hybrid of tactics, right? So, I mean, in, in the media, we think of like terrorist groups, like these are groups that only use terrorism and they, they would never use any other tactic. But it's not true. Often they engage in nonviolent protests, they participate in the political process, they sometimes direct their violence against military or government targets. In that sense, they might operate more like guerrillas. And yes, they often attack civilian targets and are categorized as terrorism. The interesting thing is that, just anecdotally, there's no real research on this, but when, when a group uses terrorism by attacking civilians, um, that group becomes a terrorist group, certainly in the minds of uh, citizens of the target country. And, and people don't soon forget when um, any international actor has used terrorism. Like an example might be like Gaddafi in, in Libya. You know, he, he used terrorism a long time before we got him. Um, but because he was involved in terrorism, forever he was branded a terrorist. And so it's very hard to shake that name. 
Yeah, I would, I would just echo Max that it is pretty common, particularly amongst, um, you know, what I would characterize as rebels, right, that are interested in changing a political order. I mean, part of that is going to be violence, but you're going to have some sort of political program associated with it as well. So you mentioned Hezbollah, but, you know, the, the various Shia factions in Iraq all had sort of, you know, at least notionally legitimate parties attached to them during the civil war there. I mean, it's just a very common phenomenon because if you want to shape politics, mili you know, military force is a tool, but it's not, you know, it's clearly not going to be the only tool. So it is pretty, it is pretty common and it, it can be hard to deal with. It certainly was in Iraq where uh, in some cases the militant faction had become part of the state part and parcel. The police in some cases were associated with factions. So that makes it very hard to treat. Um, same row there, uh, Andrew Yeo, Assistant Professor of Politics at Catholic University. My question is directed for Professor Pillar. So you've talked about terrorism being, uh, so there's, uh, terrorism has been inflated as a threat or it's overstated. Um, to me, it seems like that this has become somewhat of a dominant idea among key bureaucracies, among key players within um, the American political system. I mean, it, and it's become, you know, and it only continues to grow because it becomes institutionalized. I'm wondering if if it if it has become this dominant idea that you know threats terrorism is is one of the greatest threats to American national security. How do we uh, how do we move how do we move beyond that? How do we how we how do we reduce that if these things have been if if they do play if if they act as a dominant consensus among sort of key players within the political system? Contributions to the Cato Institute are, are a good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> The sheer passage of time, especially the time since 9-11, with an absence of anything remotely approaching 9-11, uh, is already uh, working uh, in the direction that you, you mentioned. And I think we see, well, first of all, that's, that's a common pattern in that uh, there's a spike of interest and concern and fear after an incident, and then as time goes by, that interest and concern uh, tends to dissipate. The spike after 9-11 was so large and so high uh, that it was you know, off the charts and we're still uh, seeing a lot of effects of it. Nonetheless, there has been, now that 12 years have gone by, uh, some of the same sort of decline. And I think we are seeing it today in all the falderol about the National Security Agency's activities and all the questions raised about whether uh, what it is doing um, is really, you know, protecting Americans from, from terrorism. Uh, to some extent, we've seen it with uh, other more recent controversies, um, uh, uh, I mean, less recent than that, about uh, things like interrogation techniques. Uh, I, I will assert that uh, a lot of these controversies, if you go back to the first couple of years after 9-11, and we had the same sort of leaks, that we've had over the last couple of years, they would barely be controversies at all. So it is part of the natural um, public uh, evolution of priorities and concerns that's taking place. And that is even without the efforts of Cato or anyone else, uh, but just as a matter of uh, the uh, natural evolution of public opinion, we're going in that direction. Obviously, if we have another you know, major incident, um, uh, we're going to get another spike. The question is, you know, how, how much that will undo some of what I'm talking about. Um, in the back there, uh, second row from the back, please. Glasses, yep. 
Thank you. Uh, Tad Daly is my name. I'm with uh, a small think tank in New York called the Center for War Peace Studies. Um, Professor Abrams, I don't want to suggest that one example uh, uh, disproves uh, your thesis that terrorism rarely achieves its objectives, but let me present one example, and it's a pretty big example and, and one of the big things that Cato is about, so I would invite anybody to uh, speak to it. Um, and to give ex the example, I want to cite uh, Professor Goldstein from the last panel. Do you remember this? He said, well, I go to China three times a year and I ride these wonderful high-speed rails and they've invested a trillion dollars in this, something that we haven't done in this country. Uh, I have these bright students, said Professor Goldstein, and I would like them to be working on that kind of thing, but instead they're working on counterinsurgency or anti-submarine warfare or something. That sounds to me a lot like what I understand Al-Qaeda had in mind with the 9-11 attacks. Let's overextend the United States. Let's force the United States to squander a huge amount of its societal resources and attention on this enormous military intelligence complex and get bogged down in wars. I've heard it said that they spent $500,000 on the 9-11 attacks, and it immediately led to $500 billion in economic costs. And then 12 years now, nearly a trillion dollars every year in this military intelligence complex. That, that sounds to me like Al-Qaeda, like the 9-11 attack specifically, succeeded far beyond the wildest dreams of anything they had in mind. If I could just... I'll just to add something to that, which was in, in reading uh, a couple of the papers, but particularly Max's, I thought, um, to what extent are the goals articulated by uh, terrorists just instrumental um, uh, justifications for actions that might be uh, motivated uh, by other means? I think that attaches to, to sure. his question. I mean, one, one of the problems, I think, um, in, the, in, in understanding terrorism and the study of terrorism is that uh, virtually any outcome that happens from the attack uh, terrorists can deem as a success, and indeed the general public often deems as a success. Um, so there's this really interesting phenomenon where if, if we look at coercion, the ability of terrorism to pressure governments into making concessions, if appeasement is made, if governments do trade concessions, then people say, look at how, look at how smart these terrorists are. They achieve their goals. But if the, if the government does the exact opposite, if rather than making concessions, it digs in its political heels and goes on the offensive and, and, and the target country is provoked rather than making concessions, which in a way is the exact opposite government response, people will again say, look at how smart these terrorists are. They achieved exactly what they wanted to do. And then terrorists also engage in other tactics, which are equally difficult to reconcile. They often engage in spoiling, the spoiling of peace processes. And, and, and the spoiling of peace processes, when you commit terrorism in the context of a peace process, it basically halts the peace process. So in, one, in, in coercion, you have concessions. In provocation, you have the exact opposite. You go on the offensive. And in spoiling, apparently the goal is no political movement at all. It's just for the political initiative to, to die in its tracks. And so I think that we're constantly looking for ways to justify this idea of the terrorist mastermind and the sophistication of their attacks. And I think it's important to recognize that there are variable effects 
from terrorism. In some ways, it succeeds. In some ways, it fails. Um, I feel pretty confident in saying that it fails in terms of pressuring government concessions. In other ways, though, if that's how you deem terrorist success, you could say, of course, that it succeeds because actually what we're talking about is the exact opposite response. Uh, right in front. I'm Dr. Curtis from the U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, I, I want to commend you, gentlemen, because one thing that I think you've done is clearly lay out why we don't, in international law, have a international definition of terrorism. And I'm not sure uh, whether or not there's any progress, but you, you're making arguments that I think uh, that points out the political nature of their uh, terrorism or the very threat of terrorism. Are you somewhat positive about nation states at some point getting together and to uh, actually define terrorism in international law? I'm, I'm not, um, just because, you know, as you allude, there, there are a lot of political ends to which violence can be put. And, you know, it's it's been said so much, it's it's almost cliche to say that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Um, but, there's you know, as with most cliches, there's something to that. So I think it will be very difficult to come to a consensus, uh, you know, about what a universal definition of terrorism is. Um, because, you know, when you, when you start getting too universalistic, um, you know, some things that even the United States might have engaged in in the past would suddenly be retroactively declared terrorism. So if it's about targeting civilians, strategic bombing, and indeed some of U.S. nuclear doctrine looks like terrorism on a, on a scale which, you know, a thousand 9-11s would not equal. Um, so it, it, I think it will be very difficult to, to, to achieve some sort of universal definition that everybody can agree on because there are political purposes behind violence. Others. Um, Karin Nalula, senior associate researcher at UMass Lowell. So in my own study, I test the determinants of country compliance with international laws to suppress terrorism financing. And I find that the intensity, magnitude, and number of terrorist attacks have no statistically significant attack effect on the willingness of countries to comply with this counterterrorism instrument. Instead, U.S. influence in terms of bilateral trade has a statistically significant effect on country compliance across different model specifications. Now, many of you emphasize in your talks that there's a tendency of countries to over-securitize and over-militarize in response to perceived threats of terrorism. So how would you oper operationalize the perceived threats of terrorism in a study on country responses to terrorism? Hard question. Who wants to operationalize? It's like a social science question. Well, well I'll just uh, I'll start. I, I think... Uh, you partly answered the question yourself in the reference to uh, trade patterns. I mean, uh, the terrorism issue uh, as it relates to international cooperation or to our own domestic policy cannot be considered in isolation. There are always trade-offs. Um, and certainly as other governments think about managing their relationship with us, it's not a matter of taking terrorism in isolation or even more so terrorist financing in isolation and saying, well, what's the right thing to do here given our perception of the threat? 
Rather, it's simply one ingredient in many in the overall relationship with Washington, many of the other ingredients perhaps being even more important. Um, and uh, so we shouldn't look at something like uh, the, the terrorist financing thing as a, uh, as, a, as a tail that ought to wag the rest of the dogs. The, the rest of the dog really matters, and sometimes it, it, it determines how much that particular tail is going to wag. I think in terms of the social science question, um, content analysis of how leaders talk about threats might be one way to look at it. Both the number of times terrorist threat is referenced, but also the intensity. And that might take some work. But I know some folks, including Brendan Green on the previous panel, have done some work in, in other contexts for this. So that might be one way to get at it. Because you're right, you could have only one or two terrorist attacks a year, and yet people obsess about it. In fact, that's kind of what this panel is about. Um, so that might be one way to get at it is how much do people talk about it? And what do they say? Do they say, ah, terrorism, it's kind of a threat, but not a big deal. Or, you know, oh, my God, my grandmother's house is going to burn down because of terrorism. So that's the that's the kind of stuff I think you'd want to systematically code for. And, you know, they're they're all kind of cool tools now to, to make that a little easier than having to, to do it by hand. So that might be one way to get at it. I'm going to come down here in a sec. But uh, is there somebody over here? Go ahead, sir. Thanks. <clears throat> Two quick questions, one for Mr. Long and one for Mr. Abrams. Oh, please identify yourself. Sorry, sir. Damian Jones. Uh, my question basically, it's loud. My question for you, sir, is pretty much, you talked about cyber briefly, and given the fact that there's talk about hackers being more professionalized, if you will, than they used to be, um, you look at collectives like um, Anonymous and Lulisec um, acting individually or with state actors in some cases, is that overblown in your opinion or not? And for Dr. Abrams, basically you mentioned the 4 to 5% success rates um, for groups that were able to achieve their goals or the commonalities in those four to five percent that you can extrapolate for the audience. Thank you. Hmm. Sure. So I'll, I'll answer the question first. I think, uh, you know, it depends on what you mean by overblown. I think it is true that the capabilities of some groups has increased as they've either self-organized or been encouraged to organize in some case by, by states. Um, and depending on where you're talking about, there's a blurring of boundary between the state and these groups. So I, I think there's probably more of a threat. Um, but I do think, you know, the talk that we heard for a long time about a, a cyber 9-11 was and, and is overblown. I think now the rhetoric is changing to, well, there's going to be cyber death by a thousand cuts. And I, I'm not sure I believe that, but it seems more plausible um, that it will be these little you know, these little, uh, you know, tiny bites that are taken out that will cause damage and might accumulate over time. Um, so I think there's the, you know, that, that's why I mentioned it. And I've been convinced that there is more of a threat than there was in the past, but it is not an existential threat. I mean, they're, you know, hackers are not going to shut down the entire United States power grid, at least as it's currently constructed. So that's a great question. Um, terrorists do sometimes achieve their, their stated demands, even when they're strategic. Um, so another way of phrasing your question which I appreciate is sort of what are the determinants of terrorist success? Which factors would predict an increased likelihood of government compliance? Um, and the two factors which I've identified as being most important pertain, A, to the nature of the group's demands. Um, so no surprise there, but the smaller the demands, the greater the odds that the government will actually appease them. It's a little bit like um, kids asking their parents for money. You know, if they ask for five dollars, they're more likely to get it than if they ask for 500 bucks. Um, and then the second thing beyond the nature of the demands. Um, and by the way, the nature of demands applies in almost any coercion study, uh, regardless of, of uh, the tactic that we might be focusing on. What's unique to um, 
the, the terrorism research is that target selection is also very, very important in terms of predicting the likelihood of government compliance. Uh, the more that the violence is indiscriminate, the more that the, the higher the ratio of attacks against civilian targets, the lower the odds of government concessions. And so um, mass, you know, mass casualty violence against the population um, generally tends to be politically costly. Uh, militant groups tend to have a, a much better time uh, pressuring government concessions when their violence is more selective, in particularly uh, in particular when it's directed against military slash uh, other government uh, targets. Okay, we're running out of time, so let's uh, be pithy. Sir, did you still have a question? Right here. Uh, thank you. I'm Leon Weinstein, University of Wisconsin. I'd like to ask Dr. Abrams about how he would describe the situation of Hezbollah in Lebanon over the last 15 or so y years. I would say that they achieved uh, accomplishments of having a government installed that was much more yeah. compliant with the wishes of Syria and also to maintain Lebanon uh, as an active launching pad against Israel. I think if these, if these were uh, their objectives, and I think they were, it looks like they achieved them. Let's try to keep it quick. All right, so real, real quick. I, I would say that in some ways you may have identified a hard test um, for my thesis, but even, even still, I think that it basically complies with my general narrative. If you look at where specifically Hezbollah has been successful, it's been mainly in using uh, more selective violence against the military. Uh, Hezbollah violence successfully repelled Israel twice, the second time in, uh, in 2000. Uh, Hezbollah violence, when it was selective, again, um, expelled the, uh, the Americans and, and in the French. Uh, the attack was in uh, late 1983, and the withdrawals, I think, were in... Uh, you know, merged into uh, into uh, 1984. Um, and so, and so I, I think that basically the political successes uh, were selective violence against military or government targets. But when Hezbollah engages in just like raining down rockets or missiles onto northern Israel, it only strengthens Israeli resolve to retaliate. And so there's a very different effect between whether Israeli civilians versus the IDF is being targeted. But we could talk more about that after if you'd like. Let me ask a quick question, uh, since uh, we've been neglecting Peter a bit. Um, we've heard a lot uh, about, uh, used to hear more a few years ago, but uh, nexus, nexi, nexuses uh, between uh, pirates and terrorists or, or smugglers, you know, drug smugglers, illegal immigrants, smugglers and terrorists um, and uh, insurgents and criminals of various sorts. When should we worry about that? What's the... It seems that most of those fears have, have not really been realized, but is there any particular one uh, that, that uh, or, or sort of uh, theoretical reason to worry about them, or is it all overwrought? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we unfortunately don't have time to really discuss it, but um, just a, you know, one, one or two quick points about it. If you are an established you know, criminal organization uh, engaged in various illicit trades, Basically, your number one objective beyond making a profit is to be left alone and to get away with it and uh, not be the target of, of, of the state. Um, the number one thing that you can do as a criminal organization to provoke the fury of the state, especially this country, is to go to bed with terrorists. 
uh, basically, uh, if you start uh, helping them smuggle WMD or smuggle their combatants into the United States across the border, um, you will be shut down. Uh, I mean, nothing is more guaranteed, I think, than, than, than that. It doesn't mean that uh, illicit trades of various sorts will be shut down, but that particular you know, group or individual outfit um, will uh, be targeted and dismantled. And so there are obvious, long-lasting, um, uh, enduring um, inhibitions, I should say, to that criminal terrorist Nexus. Now, does that mean that terrorists cannot sometimes go into um, criminal-like enterprise to help fund their operations? Obviously, yes. I mean, basically, I remember when the Madrid bombings happened, they, you know, they mentioned that some of them had made money in uh, selling counterfeit knockoff T-shirts on the streets and, and so on, and uh, maybe dealt some hashish and, and, and so on. Um, does that mean that the hashish trade and counterfeit T-shirt industries are responsible for terrorism? I think that would be pretty far-fetched. We're uh, over time, so those of you who, uh, whose questions I neglected uh, are entitled to seconds on dessert at lunch, <laughs> huh. which is uh, up the uh, spiral staircase in the George Yeager Conference Center.